I'd like to add my welcome to Pastor Adam. My name is Sherry Oxendale. I'm the associate pastor here, and I'm just going to dive right in there. So kingdoms come and kingdoms go. And so right now you might be thinking about Chief's Kingdom, since we live in the Kansas City area, and we have slipped to number two in the world. But since we're in the middle of a church service, you, some of you might even be thinking about God's kingdom. And even with that, you might think, Sherry doesn't know what she's talking about. God's kingdom was, is, and always will be. So right now, um, we have a perception of kingdom that is different than biblical times. We live in the United States, and we've never had a king. We live in the 21st century, and it has never happened that there is one person that is totally in charge of our nation. We, didn't, we have not had a family that gets to come in one after another and maintain the kingdom. We don't have a priest that anoints someone and says, this person is going to be king for life. In fact, we vote people in, and if we don't like that person, um, we can vote them out the next time. And beyond that, there's a term limit, eight years maximum. We also have separation of church and state. So priests are not involved in the election in that way. So why learn about the Old Testament kingdoms and its royalty? Adam, our senior pastor, has been quoting Sandra Richter's book, The Epic of Eden, and I'm also going to use one of her quotes to answer that question. She says on page 17, the church does not know who she is because she does not know who she was. We want to know who we are. These old earthly kingdoms are a part of our history and the growth of God's kingdom here on earth. The Bible is a story from the beginning of creation to the end of this earth that we live in. God's word, the Bible, has survived thousands of years and impacted billions of people. The Bible tells the redemptive story of God's enduring and unconditional love. It's a cyclic story of God constantly drawing humankind back to him, back through all of time and through of all places. If you're a believer, you are also a part of this story. You are a part of his kingdom. We need to know where we came from and what made us who we are. We join those who have gone before us as the people of God. We are a part of God's kingdom. Kingdom has meaning. A kingdom that has been, is, and will ever be. So we've been going warp speed through the Bible, getting a bird's eye view of its entirety. And we all learn in different ways. And for me, it's easier if I see the overall structure. And so I have a graphic that we're going to put up on the screen. If you have a Bible, you can open your Bible and look at the table of contents because this is arranged in the order of the Bible. Um, first, the Bible is divided into two parts, the Old and the New Testament, 39 books and then 27 books. We started in Genesis, the first book in the Bible, and talked about creation and God's promise. We moved to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, and talked about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, and we talked about the covenant. You'll notice this category is called the Pentateuch. It also includes Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These five books together are also called the Law, or Moses, the books of Moses. The reason for that is it contains God's law, and the authorship of these five books is attributed to Moses. 
Week four, we moved to the first book in the history section, Joshua, and we talked about conquest and how God's people entered the promised land under Joshua's leadership. Through Joshua, God established judges um, to rule and administer the law, with the last judge of Israel being Samuel. Samuel was also a prophet and a priest. He was, he was arguably the greatest judge. See how rapidly we moved through eight books of the Bible in four weeks. Warp speed. Today we're touching on First and Second Samuel and First Kings, the kingdom. So a little background, God had established a theocracy. This is a system where God is king, the one and only king, and the judges were to administer the law. And that law had already been established in the Pentateuch, the Torah. So for about 300 years, a variety of judges led Israel in the name of God, governed by God's laws. And this was a unique structure that set the Israelite people, God's people, apart from every other nation. However... God's people were surrounded by other nations who were ruled by kings, ruled differently. Perhaps the Israelites were envious of their neighbors. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Perhaps they wanted to fit in and not be the odd nation out. Everybody likes to be included. Perhaps they were fearful and believed a human king made the other nations stronger. Whatever the reason or reasons, the people demanded a human king be placed on their throne. And so what we're going to talk about today is the first four kings who ruled Israel until the kingdom of Israel fell apart. Those four kings are Saul, David, Solomon, who is the son of David, and Rehoboam, who's the son of Solomon. So while we talk about these kings, please listen for their source of strength, how they made decisions, and their responses to failure. We'll see that their human imperfections, we'll see a lot of them. And if we're honest and open-minded about ourselves, we can probably relate to them and see those imperfections in our own character. Um, Saul's the first king of Israel, and he was not such a great king. Much of the first half of 1 Samuel is dedicated to Saul's lack of character and his failures. God communicated with Samuel um, how and when to anoint Israel's first and second king. So hear how Saul um, responds when Samuel goes to him and tells him that his nation, Israel, needs his service. Saul answered Samuel, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you ask me such a thing? Saul's response to his call of service was an excuse. He says he's not qualified because of who he is and where he came from, and it's kind of obvious he doesn't want this responsibility. But Samuel anointed Saul, and with that anointment and the presence of the Lord, there was a change in Saul. We read in chapter 10, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servants arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined their prophesying. Chapter 12 tells us Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he ruled over Israel for 42 years. During Saul's reign, a battle was described when the Israelites were facing off with the Philistines, 
And um, Samuel had told Saul earlier that Samuel needed to come in and offer a burnt sacrifice and to wait on him. Don't go into battle until it's done. Well, as Samuel sits there and as Saul sits there and waits on Samuel, he sees the Philistine army growing larger and larger. His own army is frightened and they begin to, his soldiers begin to hide and scatter. So Saul gets nervous. He takes matters into his own hands and he does the sacrifice himself. He gets the burnt offering ready and he does it. As soon as he finishes this, what happens is Samuel arrives, priest and prophet, the one who's supposed to do this, and he says, what have you done? And at first, instead of just confessing and saying, this is what I did, what Saul does is he says, well, I was afraid of the people, and this is what I needed to do. And then later he says, okay, this is not how it's supposed to be done. Like his character is, is, is shown. He's more afraid of the people than respecting God. What we learn from that is sometimes the end, the sacrifice is done. You can say, oh, he was doing a good thing. But the end doesn't always justify the means, the way we do things. Two, later, two chapters later in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is fat, facing the Maculites. And he disregards God's instructions again. Samuel has told him that he is to take all the livestock and and get rid of them. And instead, what Saul does is he goes ahead and he saves the best livestock. When Samuel comes and confronts him, he again makes an excuse. Well, I was keeping these cattle to make a sacrifice to God. Now, don't you think he would learn? So this is Samuel's wisdom to Saul. Samuel, but Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. Have you heard the saying that it's easier to ask forgiveness than to ask permission? That saying is not true when we're talking about a relationship with God. And if we're really honest about it, that's not true when we're talking about relationships with each other. God wants us to live our lives faithfully, thoughtfully, and truthfully. Not acting in self-interest and then running to God and say, please forgive me. Or running to your friend or your family member and saying, please forgive me. Um, Saul made excuses. We are going to say that this is, this is what, how Saul replied when he was confronted. He said, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Saul is more concerned about how he appears to the people than he is with his relationship with God. He finally admits to Samuel that, yeah, okay, I did something wrong, but Come with me so we can stand in front of all the people and I can look good. I can look like I did the right thing. At this point, Samuel knows the spirit of the Lord has abandoned Saul. And he goes ahead and goes to anoint the next king. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel goes to the house of Jesse. And Jesse brings out his seven sons and lines them up. And Samuel says, "Uh, is there any other sons? And there is. So Jesse goes out into the field where David is watching the sheep and he brings his youngest son and he says, here is David, who became the next king. 
Samuel performs the ancient anointing ceremony and, and there's no fanfare, there's no celebration. The oil is poured over him and he is Israel's true king, but no one knows it yet. In fact, David goes back to tending sheep until one day his dad comes to him. Jesse comes out into the field and he says, here, take this food to your brothers. They're out on the battlefield serving, serving our God. So David says, okay, he's obedient. He's an obedient son. He goes out, he arrives at the battlefield and he is shocked. There's this giant Philistine, his name's Goliath, and he's taunting the people of God. He's taunting the armies of God. He is taunting God. So David goes to King Saul, and this is what he tells them. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defiled the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. David put his trust in the living God, the God who rescued him. David's courage, strength, and hope came from his faith in God. David was not perfect, but his faith in God never once wavered. He defeated Goliath with a sling and a stone, and then he served. He spent many years serving Saul. His service ended when Saul tried to kill him more than once, and what um, reveals David's character with that is that David had at least two opportunities to kill Saul, but he didn't do it. What he did is he knew that he would not kill God's anointed, and he knew that in God's own time, he would be elevated to the position of king. He did not need to take matters into his own hands. So when someone wrongs you, do you seek to rise above that, or do you seek revenge? Are we patient with God and his timing, or do we try to force things to happen on our own timing? David came to the throne of Israel and ruled from about 1010 to 970 BC, about 40 years. Israel thrived under his kingship. He was a poet, a writer, a musician, a warrior, a king. This is somebody who was blessed with many abilities. He brought the people of Israel together, which was once a loosely organized tribes. He brought them into um, one major military, political, world power, superpower. He conquered many armies and expanded Israel's territory by a factor of 10 through his military skill and his diplomacy. King David had incredible, incredible energy and passion. His passion is is really evident in his poetry and his writings. You can find that in the Bible. Ironically enough, sometimes our greatest strength is our biggest weakness. As it turns out, David's misdirected passion is what got him into trouble. One night, he was standing on the rooftop, and he looked over and he saw a beautiful woman bathing on another rooftop. David was not where he was supposed to be. He should have been with his man on, men on the battlefield, but here he was. He set himself up in the wrong place, and he was tempted. David sent his messengers to retrieve this beautiful woman. Her name's Bathsheba. Even though she was married and her husband was out on the battlefield, he had her brought to him. He slept with her. She became pregnant, and um, David needed to cover up his sin. So what did he do? 
He had Bathsheba's husband sent to the front lines to assure that he would be killed. And then he swooped in and took her and married her. So it's all covered up. It's in the darkness. Until one day the prophet Nathan walks into the palace and he, he confronts David and tells him about his sin. And this is how David responded. David goes to God in prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my inequity, and cleanse me from my sin. Confession. He asks for forgiveness. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Humility. He's asking for help. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, one that you, God, will not despise. He surrenders himself to God. He admits his brokenness and lays himself at the foot of the cross. Yes, there wasn't a cross then. <laughs> there was. I'm not going to go down that wormhole. The sermon's already too long. So... <laughs> When David faced failure, he responded with a desperate desire to restore his relationship with God. He confessed with humility and delivers his brokenness to God. There were, however, consequences. David and Bathsheba's first child died. And there continued an escalation of sexual sin and murder within his family. David's children turned against him until eventually David's son Absalom rebelled against him and there was an uprising. In this world, we all endure trouble. We all endure pain, but we don't have to go it alone. David didn't. He knew God was with him. God never left David. And he gave David this extraordinary promise. He told him that David's descendant would have a throne and a kingdom that would endure forever. David, David and Bathsheba's second son, Solomon, became the next king. It was a time of peace. Solomon, like Saul and David, started off really strongly. The reign of Solomon is marked by the four W's. Wisdom, wealth, writing, and women. So Solomon has a dream in which God offers him anything he wants. Solomon asks for wisdom. God is so pleased that he gives him an abundance of wisdom and power and wealth. So there's a story about Solomon's wisdom and you may have heard it it's um it's the king that two women come to him and say that this is our baby this is my baby and he said to solve it he says fine he sent for someone to cut the baby in two and each of you get half since we can't determine whose it is well one of the women says no no give the baby to her and the other woman says no let's cut it in half so of course Solomon discerns that the woman that says, save the baby even though she isn't able to care for it, is the true mother. The interesting thing about this is Solomon is not only to, able to discern um, what's going on, he's kind of able to discern the motives behind what people, why people are doing things. That's wisdom, when you can see people's character and understand where they're coming from. He is best known wealth-wise, probably, for the construction of the temple in 
um, extravagant temple in Jerusalem. And a glimpse of the extravagance is the room where the Ark of the Covenant is stored. And it's stored in an inner room that's called the Holy of Holies. Remember the replica that was shown last week of the Ark of the Covenant. And if you notice the angels on the top with their wings spread over, what Solomon did was he went ahead and commissioned that even bigger angels, angels that their wings spanned the entire room of the Holy of Holies, would be constructed. So the wings touched either side and touched each other. All gold plated. Um, the Bible tells us that Solomon spent seven years building this temple that was to house the Ark of Covenant and to be a temple of worship. And that's a lot of time. And we can sit there and think, wow, what an amazing man that he, he got the resources together, this king got the resources together to honor God and build this amazing temple. But the very next line in the Bible, this is what it says. After he spent seven years with the temple, it took Solomon 13 years, almost twice the time, however, to complete the construction of his own palace. Could it be Solomon's ego is expanding with his kingdom? King Solomon is attributed with writing the Proverbs, the Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. And then there were the women. He loved many foreign women. Um, besides the daughter of Pharaoh, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. This was against God's rules, and Solomon knew it. The foreign women brought with them other religions and false gods, and Solomon was influenced by this. And this is how Solomon responded to breaking the law. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's commandment. Now Solomon didn't completely abandon God. What he did is he just moved him aside and allowed room for other gods to be there. Do we add other gods to our life? Do we continue to come to worship or to worship God, but then also work in, oh, my personal appearance is really important, my car is really important, uh, my power, my position, and my company, all that's real important. And make God share a throne? God is to be our one and our only God. We move on. Um, after Solomon, his son becomes becomes king. Um, I lost my place. Um, but I'll get there. His name is Rehoboam. And what happens is Rehoboam, Rehoboam is, is going to become king after his father's death, after Solomon's death. And at first, the people come to him right away and say, what we would like is we would like you to lessen the taxes and we want you to take off the labor burdens. Make him not so strict. And so Rehoboam, we see that he's, he's going to be a good king. He goes to the elders, his, his father's advice people, and he asks them, what should I do? And essentially, they said, lessen it. Lessen the taxes and let up on them. And the reason for that is that then these people will be your servants forever. Well, Jeroboam decided he'd also go ask somebody else. He went and asked his friends, the younger crowd, and he made his decision. This is how he answered the people. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. It seems Rehoboam is only willing to take the advice if it matches his own free will. 
He didn't like what the elders told him, so he asked someone else while giving all the appearance of seeking what is right. As a result, the kingdom is split in two and it becomes the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The kingdoms existed as two separate kingdoms, sometimes in war, sometimes at peace, each with their own religion and their own kings. Eventually, both kingdoms were defeated and the people were exiled. What we learn from the king's lives is that their success and failure really didn't have a lot to do with their skills, their abilities, their opportunities. And it had everything, everything to do with their obedience and their humility and worship to the one true God. Despite the weaknesses, though, despite the weaknesses of these kings and despite the weaknesses that we have, God's kingdom continues. God promised King David that his descendant would sit on the throne forever. Jesus is from the line of David and fulfills that promise. We are here millenniums later worshiping the exact same God that these kings worshiped. We are part of this kingdom, God's kingdom, a kingdom that has been, is, and always will be. I am personally inspired by the prayers that were prayed by these ancient people and throughout time still have relevance today. They still talk to us today. And I would really like you all, there's a prayer in Daniel that Daniel raises up, and it's during this time period, that just gives praises to God. And we're going to have it up on the screen. And if you would just pray that with me. And we can pray with our eyes open. (laughs) Dear God, praise to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He disposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. Amen.